Yeah, uh, what, uh, what are you doing? What do you mean? I mean, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? Well, Dad told me to pick this car up. Yeah, well? He didn't mention anything about you. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, he failed to mention you either. Let's hit the road. Yeah, we gotta get Bobby. Bobby. Dad didn't tell you to pick up Bobby? Nope. Put Buddy on. Hey, hey, Buddy! Hi, buddy again. Buddy, I'm gonna say this only once, so listen very carefully. Yeah? Yeah? Your brother Marvin is in charge, not you. Is that clear? Yeah. Tell him. Marvin, Dad says you're in charge. Did you tell him? Yeah, I told him. Good. Now put Bobby on. Bobby, you're up. I don't want to talk to him. Bobby? Yeah, hey, Pop, how you doing? I'm fine. Christ almighty! Sorry, Dad, um... <laughs> listen, I'm gonna tell you this once, so listen very, very carefully. Your mother loves you very much. Maybe the most. I myself think you're gonna end up in a penitentiary within the year, but that's my humble opinion. What do I know? Your mother loves you, so for her sake, do not screw this up. Is that clear? Yeah, Pop. Put Marvin on. Hello? Not a scratch, Marvin. I want it perfect, I want it clean, I want a full tank of gas. Do not disappoint me. Goodbye. Oh, doesn't it make you want to take a road trip in a convertible on a gorgeous day like today? My goodness, yeah. I am Emily Beltram one of your ministers here at the Ankeny campus. And I just wanna say happy Father's Day to all of the men here. I think it's really cool if, that you decided to spend part of the holiday weekend at worship together with your family. So that's really cool. I'm glad we're here together. Does anybody remember this movie, Coupe de Ville, from 1990? <laughs> it's kind of an old one, but I thought it would be fun for us to look at this one. I think there's, uh, there's three groups of people who would probably really enjoy this movie. Uh, the first group is guys who grew up with brothers. So if you grew up with a brother, you probably would gel with this. The second group is people who are into classic cars. So if you're one of those. And then the third group, this might surprise you a little bit, but I think um, women. Because there's a lot of women who have forgotten how cute Patrick Dempsey used to be when he was a gangly teenager. The cute kid on the lawnmower in Can't Buy Me Love, he's now McDreamy. Hmm? So uh, those, those three groups, I think, would probably enjoy this movie. It turns out I heard about this movie for the first time from my husband back when we were dating. And he told me it was one of his favorite movies. I was surprised once I saw it that I hadn't heard of it because my family, I came out of the second group of people. 
car people. So, and I even, I, I grew up middle school and high school outside Detroit where the whole thing starts out. So my grandpa, he had a career, a really great career with the Ford Motor Company. And throughout the rest of his life, he drove Fords and only Fords with great pride. And one of my earliest memories, I was only a toddler, when I remember watching a tow truck pull into our driveway and drop off a rusty old 55 Ford Crown Victoria. And my dad loved working on that car. We moved a lot. We dragged that car to four states. Now, can you imagine this? Driving this thing from California to Michigan over the summer with no air conditioning and two large drooly dogs in the back seat. That is what we did because we brought it everywhere. My dad loved working on that car. And I kind of got the bug when I was a teenager. I actually, um, I haven't been to a wrecking yard in like 20 years, but when I was a teenager, I loved going to the wrecking yard. I drove a 75 male Jeep, which I'm talking postal. It happened to share parts though with a CJ5. So, you know, when you're a teenager and stuff happens, you know, my, my brother's friend Tommy swallowed my carburetor pin. The water pump went out. There was that time I blew up the engine. And when those things happened, my dad and I, we'd go to the wrecking yard. We'd climb around the cars until we found a CJ. We'd pull the parts that we needed, and we'd usually come back with a fistful of fuses, too, that they'd sell us for a nickel. And that place was just magical to me. So Coupe de Ville, it makes sense to me. This middle-aged man getting his boys to bring a beloved old car and deliver it for mom on her 50th birthday. How cool is that? I am going to be 50 in just a few years now, and I'm just wondering, like, do you think Brian will find me a male Jeep? That'd be fun. Well, and it's Father's Day weekend. And, you know, for, for good or bad, whether you like it or not, the fact of the matter is, dads, fathers have an influence that lasts through generations. You see, Al Bowler loved working for Ford Motor Company. So his son, Walt Bowler, loved a classic Ford car. And his granddaughter, 30 years after Al went to be with Jesus, every time I'm at a classic car show, the first thing I do is scan the rooftops for that chrome basket handle that tells me there is a 55 Crown Vicky in our midst. It just lasts. It matters. So it's interesting to me today that we have a Bible story that addresses fatherhood. And if, if fatherhood is a mixed bag for you, one of the things that you can take heart in is that this story is about the best dad ever, our heavenly father. And there is actually a lot to this story. So if you have your Bible or your Bible app with you, you really might want to go ahead and pull out Luke 15. We're going to start in verse 11, and you can see for yourself. Uh, if you've been around church for a while, or, or even maybe if you haven't, you have probably heard of the story of the prodigal son. 
And that's the name you hear a lot, but I actually prefer to call this story a man with two sons because that's how Jesus starts the story. And it is about so much more than one son's recklessness. So let's take a look. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. So, I mean, this is a huge breach of custom. Even now, can you imagine going to your parents and saying, I want my share of your stuff? It's like saying, I wish you were dead. Who would do that? But for some reason, this father agrees to the plan. So a few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. It only further emphasizes his disrespect. He did not take land and livestock to this other place with him. He cashed it out. He broke up the family farm. That's going to take away a source of sustenance from his parents and his family and diminish their clan's wealth for generations to come. And then on top of that, that means he's not going to be around to fulfill his obligation of taking care of his parents in their old age. Wow, what a move. And then this word, there's a word that I really want us to take a look at. It's this word, asotos, which is in the, the Greek that the story was originally written down in. And it has two meanings. There's the figurative figurative meaning, which is how we get the name, the prodigal son, because the figurative meaning is prodigal or reckless. But, but it actually does have a literal meaning, and the literal meaning makes a lot of sense. Using up resources without a concern for the future. And we'll want to keep these two meanings in mind because we're going to circle back to this word. But that wasting of resources, well, that may be coming back to haunt this young man because as we continue the story, about the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him into his field to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. So keep in mind, Jewish law says pigs are unclean. So Jesus is really making a point here that he's in the pig pen thinking about eating pig food. This young man's life is in the ditch. When I bet, as you can imagine, if you've seen Coupe de Ville, these three brothers also are not able to keep it between the lines. They end up also among the livestock. So let's take a look. Daddy with a real cool head, I'm going to pass a truck on the hill ahead. Transfusion, my red corpse suckles are in mass confusion. Never, never, never going to speed again. Pass the claret to me, Barrett. Oh, oh, oh. down the mountain on a rainy day. Oh, um. 
take that type O, huh? And a boy. Cal! You okay? It's all my fault. I, I know it. I, I, I fell asleep. I'm sorry. You think you got hurt? Marvin, Marvin, look, we can fix it. We have plenty of time. Uncle Phil can give us the money. Yeah, Marvin, look. Marvin. Marvin, now he didn't mean it. He fell asleep. That's all. We can fix it. No. That's it. It's over. Look, we can fix it, Marvin. With what? We're broke. Well, we'll find a way. Don't you get it? It's over. Marvin, what is the big deal? It's a car. It's just a car. It's not the car. What? It's not about the car. Well, what is it about, Marvin? It's Pop. Pop? What? What is it about Pop? Oh, God. He's gonna die. That's it, isn't it? These three brothers have bickered their way down the highway. They have trashed this incredible car that their dad entrusted to them. They think that they have, that this mud puddle is the deepest ditch that they could possibly land in until they realize, no, there's a deeper ditch. Their dad is terminally ill. And this revelation brings them to their senses. They actually start working together to finish the trip and fix the car. And it's interesting because finding himself in the ditch also, according to scripture, snapped the young man in our story back to his senses too. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. He knows he's forfeited his status. He's just hoping his dad will hire him and give him something to eat. So he has a surprise coming. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost and now he is found. So the party began. By taking his inheritance and leaving, the boy has dissolved 
any obligation that his father has to him. But in this story, he realizes his father's relationship with him goes deeper than social obligation. This father adores his son. So he runs to him, embraces him, clothes and adorns him, and celebrates. And if that were all this story had to offer, well, hallelujah, hallelujah. Because when I have done the worst, when God has no obligation or reason to want me back, God is still there wanting me. If this dad represents our God in heaven, then no matter what ditch we end up in, God's waiting for our return. And we can always, always turn back to God. And that's, that's what you get from the story, right? I mean, that's, that's what the story's about. But what if there's more to it? What if there are things that we don't even notice because we think we already know the story? You know, like, like when you've heard a song on the radio and you really like that song, and then someone else comes up to you and says, why do you like that song? That's a terrible song. That song's about, have you heard the lyrics? And then they ruin the song for you by telling you what the lyrics, the lyrics that they've been hearing. Well, in 1963, there was a song that the muddled lyrics actually sparked a two-and-a-half-year investigation by the FBI. I am not pulling your leg. I snoped this. The FBI spent two and a half years trying to figure out the lyrics to the Kingman's version of Louie Louie. It's a true story. So in Coupe de Ville, when Louie Louie comes on the radio, each of the brothers has a deeply held belief about what the song is about. Bobby, the youngest brother, he is absolutely delighted because he thinks that it is a vulgar song about an intimate act. But the middle brother, Bobby, Buddy, is like, no, that's not what it's about. It's a romantic dance song. And then, of course, the older brother, Marvin, weighs in with his opinion. Let's hear what he had to say. It's not a hump song, and it's not a dance song. It's a sea shanty. Talking about going to sea and leaving this girl. A sea shanty? You mean like Yodi Hody shipping me timbers? I mean, you don't know what you're talking about. He's saying, three nights and days, I sailed the sea. Listen, here it comes, here it comes, here it comes, listen. Me I'm this song! We'll get it on! See, what does that tell you? What does that tell you? You'll hear something, and you will be 100% confident about what you have heard. And only when you hear someone else's version do you realize that even though your version is still useful and meaningful to you, it might not be the only way to hear it. So I heard a reading of the story of the man with two sons one time. And it just opened my eyes to a whole new way of thinking about what Jesus meant by this story. So I want to see if I can share that with you in a way that makes sense and maybe bring something fresh for you as well. So it starts with this guy, Mark Allen Powell. He is a Lutheran New Testament scholar. 
And he taught at seminaries. He even wrote like some textbooks that are like standards for pastors. And one of the ways that he would get his class engaged with Bible stories would be to read the story and then have them recollect the story from memory and tell it to each other. So one day, he used the story of the man with two sons. And you've just heard most of the story. So if you have your Bible out, go ahead and like set it aside right now. Don't cheat. Let's do this from memory. I want you to turn to someone near you and tell them what caused the son to end up in the pig pen. Go ahead and do that. Tell each other what, what caused that. Just from memory. Okay. So, did you find that you were mostly in agreement? If you did, then you also are in line with what happened in this class. Uh, Dr. Powell's class, when they told the story back to each other, universally agreed that the squandering of his inheritance led to the boy's demise. And it, that's, I'm guessing that's probably what most of you said too. And it's not wrong. That is correct. That is in the story. But what Dr. Powell found particularly interesting was that not one of his students mentioned the famine. And if you're like me, the first time I heard about this, I was like, what famine? <laughs> but if you go back, there it is. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. So Powell's students, even Powell himself, and, and obviously me for the longest time, we kind of just saw the famine as like this extra detail in the story. I mean, the story makes sense without it. So out of curiosity, Dr. Powell was like, how come nobody notices the famine? Does nobody notice the famine? So he pulled a bigger group of students, and he found that it was true across genders, across racial divides, across socioeconomic status. 100% of the American seminary students that he polled agreed that squandering his inheritance was the primary reason that the boy ended up with the pigs. Only 6% of those students even mentioned that the famine might have exacerbated that. So that made him curious. So later on, when he was teaching at a seminary in St. Petersburg, Russia, Powell decided, wonder what they'll say here. So he did the same experiment with Russian seminary students. And it was interesting because the Russian students 84% of them identified the famine as the primary reason the boy ends up among the pigs. Isn't that so interesting? It's fascinating. I had never read this story through the lens of the famine as being the primary reason for his downfall. I had never even seen it that way. But here's something that the students in St. Petersburg, Russia, had more in common with Jesus' original listeners than I do. They lived in a city that had endured a horrific famine. Back in World War II, Germany laid siege to St. Petersburg, and for almost three years, they let nothing into the city. One-fourth of the residents died of hunger or exposure 
during that forced famine. So it is ingrained in their collective conscience that no matter how much money you have, no matter what kind of status you have, it is not going to leave you anywhere but up a creek when something unexpected happens and you don't have a community to support you. Nothing else matters if no one has food. These students, they explained to Professor Powell, like, how capitalist, how American to think that the boy's sin was squandering money. To them, it was obvious. The boy's sin was thinking that money could replace his community. He liquidated his stake and moved away. So when the inevitable hard time came, there was no one there who was willing to share with him. He ended up in the ditch because he was self-reliant. Like the boys in Coupe de Ville, they realize after their dad's diagnosis that you have no idea what might be around the corner. There could be hardship of any kind awaiting you. And I do think that we have a tendency as Americans that when we see someone in the ditch, even when we find ourselves in the ditch, we look to blame. We, see if this resonates with you, I think that we see it as a sin to fail. And I'll tell you what, that's how I grew up thinking. If I end up in a tough spot, I immediately think, it's probably because I did something to cause this. I probably deserve what I'm getting. So I, for one, was so glad that these students pointed out the famine to me because it gave me grace that I had never realized before. Even if the boy had been frugal, the Russian students assure you, he still would have ended up hungry. Because when there's a famine, everyone is hungry. And he had nobody there who would share their portion with him. So when you've been going it alone and your luck runs out, your luck runs out remember this. It happens to all of us. We all have hardships we have to endure that we didn't expect. But without others, when you've reached the end of your resources, you've reached the end. You end up in the ditch. It doesn't necessarily make you a bad person, but it sure will make you lonely and hungry. And God is like the man with two sons, just waiting for the opportunity to restore you, to bring you back into community where we can endure life's ups and downs together. So the professor, and honestly, me too, learned a lot from this experiment with the American and the Russian seminary students. But the guy was a curious guy, and he ended up teaching at a seminary in Tanzania, Africa. And so, of course, he was curious I wonder what the African students would say. Would they notice the squandering fortune or the famine? What would be the African student's answer for why the boy ended up in the pig pen? And I wonder what you think. So go ahead and tell someone next to you, what do you think the Africans identified as the reason he ended up in the pig pen? So if you're like me, the first time I heard about this guy and what he did, 
when I thought about what would the Africans say, I'm like, well, Africa's kind of known for having some pretty bad famines, right? So you might agree with me. I would think they probably identified the famine as the reason he ended up in the ditch. And that's like really interesting. But actually, you're going to love this because 80% of the African students said that the primary reason he ended up in the ditch was because no one would give him anything to eat. Yeah, it was a lapse of hospitality. That wasn't even an option. But if you look back at the Bible story again, there it is. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him. The man sent him into the field to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. It's right there. No one gave him anything. The professor was stunned. That, you can't really mean that, right? It was a, a la the lapse of hospitality, not the squandering, not the famine. And the African student's response to him, it really impressed me. And I, so I just, I want to share with you what, what they said. I pressed the matter with them. I asked, why should anyone give him anything? Wasn't it his own fault, squandering his money like he did? They told me this was a very callous perspective. The boy was in a far country. Immigrants often lose their money. They don't know how things work. They might spend all their money when they shouldn't because they don't know about the famines that come. People think they are fools just because they don't know how to live in that country. But the Bible commands us to care for the stranger and alien in our midst. It is a lack of hospitality not to do so. This story the Tanzanians told me is less about personal repentance than it is about society. Specifically, it's about the kingdom of God. It contrasts the father's house with the far country. Everyone who heard this parable would be shocked by the depiction of such a society. A country that would let a stranger go hungry and not give him anything to eat. And the central point of the parable is that the scribes and the Pharisees are like that. Jesus tells the parable as a response to the scribes and Pharisees who are grumbling that he welcomes sinners and eats with them. The parable teaches that the kingdom of God is a society that welcomes the undeserving. So when I heard how the African students understood this story, it softened my heart in ways that I didn't even know it was hard. I mean, according to these African students, this isn't a story about my personal sin and repentance. It's a story about the kingdom of God. It's so much bigger than that. And it's about our world that we live in where we let one another go hungry and think they deserved it. Compare that to God's kingdom where we slaughter the fattened calf every time someone says they want to come home. This kingdom, God's kingdom, it's supposed to be us, church. We are supposed to be the place where sinners come together to feast. To feast on love and grace that doesn't care where you came from 
doesn't care what mistakes you've made, what ditch you've had to pull yourself out of, or what fortune you squandered. We all end up in ditches, sometimes by our own mistakes and sometimes because catastrophe happens. But every time God's kingdom awaits us with bread and wine, and all we have to do is show up to be sealed by the Holy Spirit and marked with the cross of Christ, to be adopted into his kingdom as his children forever. And as great as that vision of God's kingdom sounds, we have to be truthful that not everybody's happy it works this way. I mean, this is also a story of sibling rivalry, maybe even mostly that, because Jesus starts the story, a man with two sons. And I think maybe the African students saw something that we tend to overlook. So let's go back and finish the story. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. And he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told. And your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, All these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat to have a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. His father said to him, Look, dear son, you have always stayed with me, and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, and now he's found. And as you hear about the older brother, you have to remember that this story is a response to the Pharisees' criticism of Jesus. Back in verses 1 and 2, tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. How dare Jesus offer food and grace to such unworthy people. How dare the father readmit his son to the family and celebrate? I mean, the older son, he doesn't see the celebration as anything but an endorsement of his younger brother's mistakes. He even makes this accusation that the son spent his dad's money on prostitutes. And if you think back to any other time that you've heard or read this story, we in the West typically take that accusation at face value. I mean, if someone would waste money, clearly they must be immoral too. But remember, let's go back to that, that word, asotos. Another interesting contrast is that in the Eastern Church, they don't take the brother's slander at face value. They take the word asotos at face value. To them, he's not spending his money immorally. He's just spending it without concern for the future. And if you think about it, how would the older brother know how his younger brother spent the money? 
the brother was somewhere far off. He wouldn't know. Why would we believe the slander of an angry older brother over the literal meaning of the word asotos, of how the brother spent the money? Because here's the thing. It's not about the ditch. It's about the dad. The dad who reassures his angry son. Son, all I have is yours. I mean, the same thing for us. All I have is yours. The inheritance has already been split. Everything that's left is going to go to this older son. And we know that in our Father's kingdom, there is no scarcity. God's grace for you is never diminished by the grace that God extends to someone else. The rule is, no one has to be worthy to receive God's grace. God says to us, all I have, I offer you. And I will celebrate when one of my lost children comes home. And why would we want to miss the party because we're pouting? There are actually three stories in this chapter that are Jesus' response to the Pharisees' criticism. And I really think this backs this point up. There's the lost sheep. If you're familiar with that story, you'll know that the lost sheep is brought back on the shoulders of the shepherd. There's the lost coin, which the woman turns her house upside down to find and then calls in her friends to celebrate that she has found her coin. And neither the sheep nor the coin are scolded for getting lost. Neither the sheep nor the coin have anything required of them but to submit to being found. Each is valuable and sought after, and the return is celebrated. So doesn't it, it make sense to, to understand this story that way too? The man with two sons. God is seeking you. You are valuable. And there is nothing for you to do about that but to receive it. That you can become part of the kingdom of God and God will rejoice over you. Because whatever you've done, whatever has happened to you, you are God's beloved child. You know something else that I think would be pretty valuable nowadays? A restored 1954 Coupe de Ville convertible. What do you think that would even be worth? You know, I know that there's this red El Dorado that's from about the same time at that American Dreams downtown. It is out of my price range. <laughs> so I don't even know what it would be worth now. And I, I have no idea what it was worth in 1963. But in this movie, when these boys finally show up at home with the car on their mother's birthday, well, their welcome is pretty special. Check it out. We figured it out. Oh, yeah? What? Oh, the car, it's, it's the same one you bought mom nine years ago. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Your cousin Marlene's got that car up in Oregon. 
I don't get it. We all get together, we bring this car down, it's not the same car. You all got together? Yeah, we all get together we to bring the car. got together? Yeah. Look at me. We all got together? Yeah, I'm looking at you, Pop. Look at them. Look at your brothers. You know those guys? Yeah, I do. How well do you know? Very well. Good. We all got together. It's not about a car. Understand? I think so. Good. You did good. That dent's gonna cost you 500 bucks. Yeah, we'll fix that, Pop. Yes, you will. Go on inside. Your mother's gonna have a conniption fit. Go on, get out of here. Okay, Pop. Okay, Pop. Hey, Pop. Yeah. I told him. What? About you. I had to. Good. I knew you would. You did good, Marvin. You did real good. Yeah. Together. Man, that's a gift a good dad can give his kids. If you're a father, if you're any parent, you cannot believe how much influence you have over the kind of relationship your kids will end up having with one another. And isn't together a gift? When you're not there anymore to know they'll still have one another, when Jesus goes back to God and knows that we still have each other, and it sounds crazy, but you need to love your children so generously and so obviously that they never feel like they have to fight over it. And that's a big ask. So what you really need to do is invest in your relationship with your Heavenly Father. Because God's love for you is abundant. And God's love for your children is bigger than you have for them. So if you can experience the truth of God's love for you and just let that fill you up, then you'll have all the love you need to show others because it won't be out of your resources. It'll be out of his. And if you happen to be someone who's in a ditch right now, take the advice of seminary students from around the world. Stop squandering your resources Turn to your community and let them help you. And no matter how bad it is, never forget that you are a beloved child of the Almighty God who wants you in his kingdom. And if you're one of those people who's actually willing to admit to yourself that maybe you share some of the feelings of the older brother, that maybe your faithfulness is being ignored 
in favor of people who show up empty-handed, smelling like pigs. Well, this is what you need to know. God's love is still big enough for you and for them too. So let's not let ourselves be shamed by judging and failing to offer hospitality because there is no scarcity in God's kingdom. And one other thing I do feel like you need to know, Louie Louie was a a sea shanty. (laughs) There were other versions of the song recorded. I don't know why the FBI couldn't figure this out. But once again, Marvin was right. So if any of you have an older brother that's always right, here we go. But life is a party in the house of God. So let's all stand up and celebrate together with the worship team that we have a God that is dependable for us for whatever we need if we'll only receive it.